Collier and Horowitz, in their uh, book, The Kennedys, writes about the primary campaigns back in 1960. Jack Kennedy, uh, evidently during that primary campaign, was standing by a mine shaft in western Virginia, shaking hands with uh, different miners. One miner came up to Kennedy and asked, um, is it true that you're the son of one of the richest men in the country? <laughs> Kennedy uh, sheepishly um, nodded his head and said, I, I guess so. Um, the miner then asked, is it true that you've never wanted for anything, that you've always had plenty, uh, pretty much anything that you've ever wanted? Mr. Kennedy reluctantly said, well, it's pro pro probably true. Um, so the miner said again, he said, well, is it true that you've never done a day's work with your hands in your life? Jack Kennedy nodded his head. Then the miner said, well, let me tell you this, you haven't missed a thing. <laughs> uh, you know, I think as we smile and, and laugh a little bit, uh, many of us could nod our heads along with that miner's comment. When it comes to our work, we we would say as well, man, um, what a pain. I mean, you haven't missed a thing if you haven't worked. Over the past two years, we've, we've seen this played out, haven't we? Employers reported a 21% increase in burnout and 17% increase in physical symptoms of stress, like mu muscle tension and uh, fatigue. Gallup State of uh, Global Workplace 2021 report found that 57% of workers in the United States and Canada reported feeling stress on a daily basis. Two-thirds of American workers and eight out of ten Canadians are either watching the clock, they say, doing the bare minimum to get the paycheck, or worse, actively working against their employer. Now, my guess is that if you're like me, that reading those stats, hearing those stories, uh, really, you're not shocked by them. Maybe, in fact, you've been there yourself. I mean, you hate your job. You're dreading tomorrow morning <laughs> at 8 o'clock. You know, you, you find yourself at work all day uh, long looking down at your watch and... Uh, uh, just continuing to count the hours off until the, the day finally, you know, finishes there at the job and then you're able to go home. Question is, why does our work cause us such stress? Um, why is our work such a pain? Why is it that our job makes us want to use a four-letter word? <laughs> Last week, we started our five-week series uh, called uh, God at Work, where what we're doing is we are asking um, what God has to say about our work, um, about our jobs. Um, how can we connect Sundays to our Mondays? Now, I, I want to fully acknowledge that I'm speaking to a wide variety of people here, both here in person as well as those who are watching online. Some of you are students You've, you haven't even entered the work world yet. Um, others are retired. 
and your eight to five careers, if there is such a thing left now, <laughs> um, you know, those, those careers are behind you. Still, most of us, I think, are still in the middle of it. Work devours the lion's share of our hours, of our days, of our weeks. Now, I believe that God has something to say to all of us, no matter what place you are, um, when it comes to our work. And two reasons why. First of all, because all of us work. As Rachel just shared, um, work is more than a job. If you're a student, listen, your work is your school and classes and your studies. That's your work. If you're a stay-at-home mom or dad, um, your work is running errands. It's, it's uh, keeping track of the family schedules and a multitude of other tasks that fill up your days. If you're retired, your, your work is the volunteer work you do, or maybe your, your work is caring for your grandchildren, or maybe your work is caring for your aging parents. Your job, your, your commute, your, your to-do list, your yard work... <laughs> All of that comes under this big umbrella of work. That's the first reason. Second reason, uh, I think that um, all of us need to hear from God on this topic, this issue, is because if you are a Christ follower, no matter what your work is, your primary calling is to Christ. And the gospel properly understood leads us to a seamless faith uh, Sunday through Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, the rest of the week. All of life matters to God. Um, every scrap of it. When you're grocery shopping, when you're um, mowing your lawn, uh, well, whenever that time comes, you know, in our season, um, you know, it all matters. <laughs> um, when you're picking up your kids from school, when you're running uh, you know, along the, the creek, the pathway here, when you are watching TV, when you are working, it all matters to God. So, let's go back to the beginning of God's story. What does God have to say about our work? Last week, we looked at Genesis chapter 1 and 2. I invite you to turn back with me to Genesis, very beginning chapters 1 and 2, we saw here that God is a worker. From the first words of Genesis, God is creating. He's designing, he's engineering, he's inventing, he's shaping the world. God is a worker. And since God can do nothing that is not inherently good, therefore, work must be good. Work has intrinsic value. Uh, when we understand that God is a worker and his work is good, then the value of our daily work increases as well, doesn't it? We also learn that God has made us in his image as workers. What we do, see, it, it matters. What we do for work is central to our role as image bearers. We also learn that God's original design and desire is that 
um, our work and our worship are, uh, are, are seamless, that there's not to be a division between the, the two of those. Um, see, so oftentimes what happens is we think of worship as something we do on Sundays and we work as something we do on Mondays, completely separate. <laughs> but that dichotomy is not as God originally intended it. Our work, whatever it is, is to be an act of God-honoring worship. That's all part of what our work means. Um, originally, work was not a penalty. It wasn't part of the curse. In fact, work was a blessing. I want you to see this. I didn't point this out last week, but I want you to notice it. You notice the first blessing that God gives us here in Genesis chapter 1, in God's story? Look with me. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The first blessing of God, catch this, is work. <laughs> Surprise you? God blessed them and said, Get to work! Subdue, wrestle, rule, reign, work. Take care of the garden. I made you to work, God says. See, work is a blessing from God, not a curse. Now, I know what a bunch of you, you know, are, are thinking right now. I mean, you say, well, that's easy for you to say, Sutton. You, you work at a church. I mean, come on. Um, you know, you get paid to read the Bible and drink coffee all week long. Come on. And that only happens one day a week. <laughs> Come on. Um, and you work with people who love Jesus, right? And you say, well, I, I work at a bank, and um, my boss is a pain. <laughs> I work in construction with people who swear a lot. You know, I, I drive a delivery truck, uh, and I hate traffic. I'm in sales, and to be honest, it's not always easy to be honest. <laughs> I hate my job, you say. Well, at least part of the reason why you hate your job or don't like your job or get frustrated at your job is because of what happens in the next part of God's story here in Genesis chapter 3. Because with Genesis chapter 3 comes a serpent. The temptation and the fall. <laughs> Paradise was lost and sin ravaged our perfect world. And our work, your work, my work, this side of heaven has permanently changed. Now, I'm borrowing some of these ideas uh, from the book uh, Work Matters by Tom Nelson. Uh, Tom Nelson, Tom's a, a free church pastor down in the Kansas City area, and he has written and preached uh, widely about God's perspective on our work, and I'm indebted to some of his insights here. But I want you to start with me. Um, Genesis chapter 3, start with me at verse 17. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Um, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground of 
for out of, out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. There it is. You notice that word in verse 17, cursed? That word, it indicates a new reality, right, of human existence. Now, I want you to notice something. It's not our work that is cursed. It's the ground that is cursed. And that makes our work much more difficult, much more challenging. Um, the blessings of Genesis 1 and, and 2 was that humans were made in the image of God to rule over the earth, to subdue the earth, to take the creation project forward. Um, but then comes the curse, the curse of Genesis 3 is now that that role of our work, it's hard. Now there's pain. Now there are thorns and thistles in the ground and there's sweat on the brow. Now there's blisters on your hands and sore backs and the need for icy hot and ibuprofen and a worker's comp and and, and medical insurance. And I need a vacation. (laughs) Humankind now lives under the curse. Sin has entered the world, and it has corrupted God's original design. The very nature of our human work has fundamentally changed. Our work is now difficult. Work is no longer what it ought to be. Our work has become painful and and dirty. I don't know if you remember it, um, but there was a, a TV show uh, years ago um, off of uh, Discovery Channel, I think it was. It was called Dirty Jobs. Remember that? Anybody remember that? I don't think it's on TV anymore. But when it was, and what it did is it took a kind of a humorous look at what it's like to do a job in our fallen world. <laughs> the show always began with the following quote from the show's host, Mike uh, Rowe, who usually spoke while in the midst of some particularly dirty task. And he always said this, my name is Mike Rowe and this is my job. Yeah, he had this great deep voice. Have you ever heard his voice? Anyway, he goes, I can't imitate it, but try. I explore the uh, country looking for people who aren't afraid to get dirty. Hardworking men and women who earn an honest living, doing the kinds of jobs that make civilized life possible for the rest of us. Now, get ready to get dirty. You know, some of the jobs that uh, were highlighted on that show included a a roadkill collector, a a catfish noodler, a shark suit tester. Anybody want to volunteer for that one? Shark suit. A penguin keeper, a bologna maker, a hot tar roofer. (laughs) The the uh, the show's theme song features the lyrics, Oh, it's a dirty job, but somebody's got to do it. Now listen, the, the job you have might not have ever made it on the show, and, and you want to thank God if it didn't. But the curse of the fall means that work now oftentimes is painfully difficult and many times dirty. <laughs> not only is our work difficult, but because of the curse, our work has become distorted. Two ways our work uh, tends to become distorted. First, um, when uh, work becomes too big a deal in our lives, (laughs) it's distorted. 
like any human endeavor, like, uh, you know, sex or, or, or money or, or art, work can take the form of an idol. This distortion is better known as workaholism. When we give honor and energy that ought only be given to God to our jobs, then our work has become an idol. You sacrifice time, you sacrifice energy, you sacrifice health, you, you sacrifice children and, and marriages and, and, and relationships, you sacrifice worship for your work. That's workaholism. When work is where you look for meaning and where you, you look for satisfaction for life, when it's a place where you get your identity and, and your self-worth, then work has become your God, small g. In Luke chapter 12, uh, Jesus tells a parable about a rich fool who lived as though God didn't exist, working endlessly and accumulating all of this wealth so that one day he might be able to retire, you know, and take it easy. But at the end of the day, this workaholic truly had nothing. And in his death, God asked him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Workaholism is a destructive distortion of work that wrecks havoc on our physical health and on our relationships. I mean, much of the frantic pace of life is driven by our distorted view of work. You know, sometimes I hear people say, um, I'm doing all this work for my family, you know, so my family can have a better life. But I wonder if a prophet might name it idolatry, giving to a job that which ought to only be given to God. There's an opposite distortion. Um, it's when our work becomes no big deal. <laughs> and I mentioned this last week in, in my message. It's called slothfulness. Instead of making work an idol, what happens is we make leisure an idol. The Bible repeatedly warns of this distortion. Um, Proverbs says... The slugger does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. The Apostle Paul, who modeled diligence in his work as a tent maker, encourages first century uh, Christians, uh, Christ followers in Thessalonica, to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Today, I run into slothfulness, I think, in um, the entitlement mentality sometimes I, I, I see or run into. I'm entitled to this. Um, you owe me this. Uh, I deserve this. <laughs> Slothful people find very creative reasons, excuses not to do their work or to do just enough to get by and be able to get a paycheck. Slothfulness is a reflection of the corruption of God's design for our lives and our good world. See, I got to tell you, God's word is incredibly honest with us, isn't it? It tells us that our work is a mixed bag. 
That's both a gift and a curse. It's, it's exhilarating and frustrating. In, in fact, in his book, um, Work in the Spirit, Mirzloff Wolf points out, he says, together Genesis 2.15 and Genesis 3.17 and following affirm that the inescapable reality of human sin makes work unavoidably an ambiguous reality. It's both a noble expression of human creation in the image of God and a painful testimony to human estrangement from God. So you say, okay, so what do we do? (laughs) What do we do with this mixed bag called work? Well, I would suggest that when it comes to work, Genesis calls us to a hopeful realism. Jim Collins, the author of Good to Great, interviewed Admiral Jim Stockdale, the highest-ranking officer in the Hanoi Hilton prisoner war camp during the height of Vietnam War. Regarding the prisoner of war camp, Collins asked Stockdale, who didn't make it out? Oh, that's easy, answered Stockdale. It was the optimist. The optimist, Collins said. I mean, explain that. I don't understand. The optimists, Stockdale said, are they, uh, they were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas, and Christmas would come, and, and then Christmas would go. Then they'd say, well, we're going to be out by Easter, and then uh, Easter would come, and Easter would go. Then Thanksgiving, then we Christmas again, and they would die of a broken heart. But then he said that those prisoners who prepared themselves for the likelihood of a long and difficult captivity, yet believed they would eventually triumph, would make it back home. They were the ones who survived. What Stockdale was talking about was a hopeful realism. See, I think in the midst of both our good and and bad of our work, we need to cultivate this hopeful realism. Listen, your mind might be filled with this idealistic uh, phantoms of the perfect dream job, you know, that's out there. You may be counting one day on, on landing on the ideal career. Listen, if you're a student, maybe you, you say, man, I can't wait to finish school and get out there because that perfect job is just waiting for me. <laughs> maybe you have a job, but every couple of years, you know, you, you quit and start looking for another job because the grass is always greener, you know, on the other side of that work fence. Maybe you're retired and there are days you just wish you could go back to work. <laughs> okay, now I'm going a little bit too far, but... Um, <laughs> Anyway, uh, you know, there's this idealism that's out there. Let me ask you, how are you viewing your work? Are you viewing your work through an idealistic lens? uh, or, Or are you viewing your work with a sense of hopeful realism? The perfect job or... Or, or, or career is not only unrealistic, I got to tell you, it's theologically untenable. Even if you're blessed to have your dream job, I can assure you that it will be hard and will not be all that you have longed it to be. So how do you develop a hopeful realism about your work? Well, one way is that you trust that while you're on the job, while you are working, God is doing some work in you. 
Your work is an opportunity for personal growth and, and influence. You know, and as I look back on my life and, and my vocational work, I realize that some of the times my greatest personal and leadership growth has been in the most difficult days that I've encountered. When my work has been the most demanding, um, when my inadequacy has been the most inescapable, <laughs> I've had to trust God for his wisdom and for his strength. And as a result, my growth as a person has become most significant. At the beginning of Romans chapter 5, the apostle Paul lays out God's path for our transformation. You ever realize that? And it's not a path of ease, but it's one of enduring hope, he tells us. We must fix deeply in our hearts and minds that our work, though oftentimes difficult, is one of God's main means for our spiritual growth, for our spiritual transformation. Work is where perseverance and proven character and hope are often deeply forged. It's in our work. Another way to cultivate hopeful realism about our work is to trust that God is using us to do some, some good works. I love the fact that Rachel uh, quoted from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Now, I got to tell you, um, you know, that was a God thing because I didn't tell her that I wasn't even going to refer to that in my, in my message. But do you remember what the verses that came before Ephesians 2, 10, what they said? Verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Now, what we tend to do is we, quit, we tend to quit reading that passage right there at that point. But I got to tell you, that's not the end of the Apostle Paul's thought. For you've been saved by grace through faith. Yes, absolutely, that's central but it's not the climax of Paul's thought. The peak of his thought is that you and I are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, listen to this, to do good works which God has set out in front of you, way in advance for you to do. See, what Paul is doing here in Ephesians chapter 2 is he's retelling the Genesis story. He's alluding back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. The creation poem, God made human, male and female. And he's saying, listen, Jesus saved you to put you back into a right relationship with the creator God, absolutely, and to put you back to work. That's what he's saying. So what are the good works that Paul's talking about here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10? John Stott defines it this way. He says, the expenditure of energy, manual or mental, or both, in the service of others, which brings fulfillment to the worker, benefit to the community, and glory to God. That's the good works. Good works, then, is work that helps others. Good works uh, helps, uh, serves others. Good work is volunteering as a master gardener. It's being a mom. It's being a homeschool teacher. It's being a youth group leader. God, good works are those things. Listen, that we do that creates shalom. <laughs> that creates a world where humans can thrive, where humans can live in God's presence. 
Dorothy Sayers, in a thoughtful essay entitled Why Work, writes this, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is often, is usually confined to moral instructions in church attendance. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. John Simonton said, Amen. <laughs> Later on, she continues, she says, Let the church remember this, that every maker and worker is called to serve God in his profession or trade, not outside of it. The only Christian work is good work well done. So what's that mean? What's that mean? Does it mean that if you're a, a, a Christian dentist, that whenever you, uh, you know, do a filling for someone, you have to scratch John 3.16 into their tooth? <laughs> no. No, that's not what it means. It means that your work is to reshape the world in such a way that people see God's presence and beauty. It means that as you, as you do your work, you go about your work in such a way that you bring glory to God. And you trust that God is using you and the work you do for his greater purposes to bring about shalom. See, we need to take a lesson from Genesis, I think. Your work, whatever it is, it has value. It matters. Yet understand, it will not be all that you want it to be. And if you're going to thrive at your job, you're going to need to develop a helpful realism about your work. Your work is good, even though it has been distorted by sin. But listen, your work, although it's not what it ought to be today, one day it will be. In his beautiful poem, When Earth's Last Picture is Painted, Rudyard Kipling penned these words. Let me finish with this. When Earth's Last Picture is Painted... And the tubes are twisted and dried. When the oldest colors are faded and the youngest critic has died, we shall rest and faith, we shall need it, lie down for an eon or two, till the master of all good workmen shall put us to work anew. And no one shall work for the money, and no one shall work for fame, but each for the joy of the working and each in his separate star shall draw the thing as he sees it for the God of things as they are. Friends, our work is not what it ought to be. But one day, one day, it will be.